Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the surprising collusions between European occultism and Shiite Islam. In the 19th and early 20th century, the occult was very much in vogue in Europe, even among some respectable scientists. In fact, for its promoters, the occult was seen as a distinctly modern and scientific form of religion, a way of controlling the invisible forces of the universe that were similar but more subtle and more powerful than electricity. As we'll see over the next 45 minutes, a number of Iranians sent for medical and other scientific studies in Europe in the 1900s took back home with them an enthusiasm for this high Victorian occultism. But from that point on, a sequence of other Iranian metaphysicians, including some prominent Muslim thinkers, adopted these European occult imports for their own purposes. By the 1940s, even Ayatollah Khomeini, the future founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran, was writing about the occult. To explore these curious and sometimes uncanny collusions between Islam and the occult in modern Iran, I'm joined by Ali Reza Dustar. Alireza Dustard is an assistant professor of Islamic studies and the anthropology of religion in the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. He's the author of The Iranian Metaphysicals, Explorations in Science, Islam and the Uncanny, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2018, and later that year went on to win the Albert Hurani Book Award from the Middle Eastern Studies Association. <laughs> Hello, Ali Rizzo. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hi, Niall. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, today we're going to be talking about perhaps the unusual question of how European science and European occultism transformed religiosity in Iran over the course of the 19th and 20th century through to the present day. Now, Evidently, there were many other factors in the transformation of Islamic history and political history in Iran in, the, in this period, not least political dimensions themselves, whether the political context of Iran's interaction with the, the imperial great powers and then the United States, and indeed the evolution of political Islam, sometimes called Islamism, that creates the Islamic Republic of Iran in 1979. But we're going to be dealing with a series of lesser known, not entirely separate developments that actually saw Iranian religiosity at both the state level and the level of popular religion across Iranian society, saw religion transformed through the borrowing adaptation and in many ways the transformation of European science and European occultism. Now, by way of background, we're going to be starting in the Qajar period that runs from 1785 to 1925, the Qajar's Q-A-J-I, as it's spelled in English, the dynasty that rules Iran in this period from the later 
18th century till 1925. And in the early 19th century, the Qajar rulers send a, a number of embassies and the first student groups to Europe, to France, to Britain in particular, in order to create political contacts, but also to start bringing back science to Iran. The, the forms of science that have emerged out of the European Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. And in this time, Iranians and Muslims generally are thinking of these sciences as what they call either the Ulum al-Jadid, the new sciences, or the Ulum al-Farangi, the, the Frankish or the European sciences. But those student and diplomatic and other high status visitors from Iran to Europe in the early 19th century are also exposed to religiosity as it's changing in Europe itself in this period, whether through changes in Christianity, more rational post-enlightenment forms of Christianity, or indeed Freemasonry, which a number of Iranians and many other Arab Muslim visitors join Freemasonry as well. And these forms of science and new religiosity are being brought back to Iran and indeed to the wider Middle East in this period. So that brings us up to the point at which I want to start our conversation and then ask you to tell us in more detail, how did European science and European occultism transform religion in Iran in the 19th and early 20th century? Yes, um, thank you for that preamble and the kind of setting the stage here. I think something that's really important and is um, often discussed in the history of Iranian modernization is the Russo-Persian Wars in the early 19th century. So the wars between the Russian Empire and um, the Qajars, which led to massive um, losses of land. Uh, so Iran having control over much of the Caucasus region, Georgia, Armenia, uh, Azerbaijan, and so on that they lost to the Russians. And this was a major impetus for the thinking that there was something really missing in, in the Iranian state, which had to do with knowledge and with military power, right? So this, this became an impetus in the early 19th century to um, both scientific and, and military and administrative reform, right? And science kind of had a really key role here. Another, another impetus, I would say, is concerns over public health. from the early 19th century onwards, you had these big practical problems of rule, right? Whether it be administrative, it'd be military, or it'd be uh, health-related. So, you know, the, the, the rise of modern science is fundamentally connected to these practical questions, right? And, and, and the Qajar state begins, as you said, to send students to Europe, to England, to France, and so on. It begins to bring Europeans to Iran to train students some of whom lived for long periods in Iran and actually died in Iran. In the mid-19th century, you have the establishment of the Dar al-Fanun, the, the polytechnic college, where the modern sciences were taught, where a lot of European textbooks were translated, scientific texts were translated, and so on. So from the, really, from the early 19th century, but especially from the mid-19th century with the establishment of the Dar al-Fanun, you have a lot of Iranians... Uh, traveling to Europe to study. And as you said, they're bringing back modern scientific knowledge, but they're also sometimes bringing back modern scientific forms of religion uh, or, or modern forms of religion, modern occ occultism, theosophy, um, and so on. And what's really critical about this dual import, as it were, the, 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 the religious and the scientific, is that they're conjoined from the very beginning. <laughs> Thank you.
So I have an example of this that I discussed in my book, Khalid Khan Sarafi, who travels to Europe in 1895, uh, if I'm not mistaken, or it's 1897, thereabouts. So when he travels to Europe, and he was a, a physician at the court of Nasser al-Din Shah, when he goes there, he goes there to study, he goes to Paris to study medicine. And then he comes back not only with increased medical knowledge, but also with knowledge of spiritism. And spiritism was a modern religious movement founded by Alain Kardec in France, uh, which was fundamentally concerned with contact with the souls of the dead. And the spiritists saw this as a scientific religion. The idea here was that through empirical, empirically verifiable contact with the souls of the dead, we can actually attain positive knowledge, which is to say scientifically verified knowledge of moral truths, right? How do we act in the world? We act in the world by asking the spirits of the dead who, have, who are either doing well or doing poorly in the afterlife, you know, we can ask them how to act in the world. Now for, for Sakafi and for the spiritists, this was a fully scientific mode of knowledge. It was a fully scientific mode of religion. That's really fascinating, isn't it? Because spiritism or spiritualism, as it's sometimes called, had, had been in invented in, in 1848 in New York, in fact, by two sisters, Kate and Margaret Fox, who thought they could talk with the invisible spirits of the dead. And from there, it had spread across the Atlantic and then to France. In this period, as you said, when, when science itself is transforming religiosity in Europe. And it's particularly interesting, the timing of your Iranian physician, Sakafi, when he comes to, to, to Paris, to Europe, in 1895. The following year, Marconi has invented wireless telegraphy. In 1897, the, the discovery of the electron by Sir Joseph Thompson. And, and, and many spiritualists then are drawing on this science, aren't they? Saying, well, just in the ways the electron of wireless telegraphy are invisible particularly an invisible form of communication, telegraphy. So our spiritual contacts with the dead can certainly be seen in scientific terms. And the seance becomes set up in many ways like a laboratory, doesn't it? So these are forms of a, a rational religiosity then that appeal to scientifically minded people in Europe. Alfred Russell Wallace, the famous evolutionary biologist, was a, was a spiritualist and... and uh, 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 Conan Doyle, the medical doctor and writer of the Sherlock Holmes stories. So it, it's quite natural in a sense then that our Iranian physician, Sakafi, then is interested in these scientized forms of spiritism or spiritualism. Absolutely. And he, he didn't learn spiritism from uh, uh, only spiritual practitioners. When he goes to Paris, he himself says, although I have some doubts about this, but he says that he studied with Jules Bernard Louis, who's a, uh, a colleague of uh, Charcot, the famous neurologist. He himself was a neurologist. He had made major contributions to the study of, of, of the brain and of the nervous system, uh, but he also had occult interests. So he was um, uh, studying the uh, alleged effects of medicine at a distance. So if we show a patient a test tube with uh, some kind of chemical compound in it just by virtue of uh, its being within line of sight to the patient, will this then have an effect on the patient? Or he was looking at the uh, brain and, 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 and body emanations of patients that he could then uh, somehow visualize through uh, photographic and, and other kinds of techniques. Something else that's really important about this is that in uh, already by, even in 1900, when there's the uh, 
World Congress of Psychology in Paris, psychologists included among their ranks not only what we now recognize as experimental psychology, but also psychical researchers and spiritists and spiritualists. Um, so, you know, psychology in the late 19th century was trying to separate itself from philosophical introspective psychology. But then there were all these other ways in which the human soul, the human psyche was being studied empirically in ways that separated, also separated itself from uh, introspective psychology, but that didn't quite match up with the, uh, what later on became established as what we now know as empirical psychology. <laughs> So the lines were really blurred between the, the so-called religious and the scientific, you know, even in France in, in, in 1900. So when, you know, when Sadafi goes there and comes back, when he comes back from France, he's really bringing back, he thinks, the state of the art. And, and for many Parisians, this would have been the state of the art, um, both in terms of religion and in terms of scientific interest. Sadafi, of course, is just one example we're, we're, we're taking of, 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 of what becomes a very large number, particularly by the early 20th century, of Iranians who will go to study sciences of various kinds, and particularly medicine, uh, in Europe. And he indeed founds, as you wrote in your book, he founds a, a, an Anjuman society to, to gather many more members to spread this scientific spiritualism in Iran itself. So these contacts with, with Europe, as through so much of the Middle East, are also bringing with them, of course, science together with religiosity, as you said. And in the sunny world, there's been a, a huge effort to reform and one might say rationalize Islam, not least by the key figures of, of the founding figures of Salafi Islam, let's just say Muhammad Abdu who died in 1905 and Rashid Ridda, his disciple who died in 1935. And we're seeing similar developments in Iran as well in this period, an attempt to, to make Islam seem rational, to make it seem modern and indeed to square it with the findings, but also in some ways, perhaps the language, the discourse of science. So, in view of what we've seen of these earlier interactions, scientific and religious, with Iran and Europe in the early 19th century, how did this start to generate a process of religious rationalization in Iran? Uh, yeah, great question. I think, you know, you're right that one of the ways to think about religious rationalization is really to think about it as a, as a process of scientization or uh, thinking about ways in which we might incorporate scientific methods and, and concepts into religious doctrine and practice. So spiritism and theosophy, other forms of occultism, uh, did this in spades. Uh, they, um, um, the proponents of both uh, spiritism and theosophy in Iran were thinking about how do we draw on scientific methods to promote religious ends, right? And this, this could be through the discovery of truths about the self and the universe, um, but also, um, uh, a, a kind of morally oriented um, form of science, right? Not only discovering what we are, where we are, and so on, but also where are we headed and how should we be acting in the world. Now, from the very beginning, when uh, spiritism takes off in Iran, it's, uh, well, first of all, it's largely an elite educated um, uh, interest. And secondly, um, those who are committed to spiritism and to theosophy are counterposing what they're doing to popular so-called superstitious modes of religion. And just to clarify, theosophy is this other 
a new, in many ways, occult religious movement founded in, in New York City again by Madame Blavatsky and Colonel Alcott, which had absorbed a lot of, or claimed to absorb, a lot of Indian occult teachings relating to Buddhism and so on, and has enormous impact in India and in other parts of the world, in, including Iran. So these are, in a sense, new religious movements uh, that are spreading from the US through Europe, through India, and indeed through Iran. Absolutely. And, and theosophy, um, already from the time of Blavatsky, was also in dialogue with spiritualism, right, and with spiritism. So the, uh, the a distinction between spiritism as it was developed in France and later spread to elsewhere and some versions of spiritualism was that spiritism was more squarely interested in reincarnation and discovering kind of the, the stages and the processes of reincarnation, something that theosophists also took up, right, um, in their own ways, but also in conversation. And then in Iran, too, you see people who are um, theosophists, um, like Hossein Kazimzadeh Iran Shah, who was um, uh, the founder and, and editor of the journal Iran Shah, um, lived in Berlin for a long time, and then later on um, went to Switzerland. Um, you know, he, he had spiritist interests as well, so he would publish things about um, spiritism in his journal. Um, now, uh, so, so as, I, as I was saying, the, the, the spiritists and the theosophists were thinking of their practice as something that was distinct, right, from what the folk do, what, what, what ordinary people do. And they also thought that, uh, you know, so, so you have some, some, you have some strands of um, theosophy that are very elitist, right? They're, they're not particularly open, say, to allowing the folk into, um, uh, into their practice. But there's also a reformist tendency within, within spiritism, which says, look, we, uh, so Khalil Khan was writing about this. He was saying, uh, we need to be propagating the truths that we're discovering through spiritism, right? And this is a mode through which we can reform society. And it accorded very well with a broader modernist interest in reforming society by transforming religion, right? So something that hasn't been, I think, as much um, attended to in the study of the Middle East is the way in which um, religious practitioners who are not Muslim right, who were engaged in some of these modern occult forms of religiosity, wanted to also reform society through religion, right, through transforming um, religion and bringing their own religious truths to society. You have another line, which is um, the, the, the kind of maybe more orthodox Islamic line of scholars, um, who also take an interest in spiritism in Iran. So um, Ayatollah Khomeini is one of these figures, um, uh, again, uh, not very well known that, that he had this interest. Uh, in the 1940s, in the early 1940s, he wrote, uh, 1940-41, he wrote a book called Kashful Asrar, The Unveiling of Secrets, in response to an anti-clerical attack on, uh, on Shi'i Islam, so the, the branch of Islam that is that is dominant um, in Iran, and you know you see here kind of two modes of um, uh, two modes of uh, reformism kind of coming to clash with one another. And this is the same Ayatollah Khomeini who will, of course, lead the Iranian the Islamic Revolution in, in 1979. So absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and so you know this is 1941, which is one of his first forays into the public sphere, and and and, and a really serious and and. Um, uh, um, intense engagement in the public sphere. And uh, what he's doing there in, in Kashfal Asrar in part is uh, arguing for the rationality of Islamic doctrines, including the doctrine of 
the permanence of the soul and 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 the idea that uh, that the souls of holy figures are not only not only survive their death but they're actually efficacious in the world so it makes sense for the believers to be paying visits pilgrimages to their shrines and asking for favors and for healing and so on and so forth so some of these anti-clerical intellectuals who were um, uh, some kind of some of them like Ahmad Kastravi were uh, abandoning um, Islam. Others were not. Were thinking of themselves as very much within the Islamic tradition, but they were they were attacking shrine visitation as a superstitious practice. And Khomeini was saying, no, no, look, shrine visitation is actually very rational, and it depends on uh, this idea that the soul is permanent, the soul the soul is efficacious. And how do we prove this? There are many ways. Some of them are classical Islamic ways of reasoning. Some of them are um, philosophical uh, proofs that we can draw from the ancient Greeks all the way to Descartes. But then, this is the little-known aspect of Khomeini's thought, he also drew on psychical research, right? And, and it's really interesting that the, the way in which he did this reveals something also about the transnational circulations of thought in this period and the kind of intra-Muslim conversations that were happening. He drew on this um, encyclopedia by Muhammad Farid Wajdi, the, uh, an Egyptian reformist thinker, who wrote a, an encyclopedia um, of the 20th century. And he has a massive section within this encyclopedia on the spirit, in which he cites lots of European psychical researchers and people who in some way had an interest in either spiritism or spiritualism or psychical research in order to prove that the soul actually exists. So Khomeini cited him, and in doing so, he also was citing, uh, you know, interestingly, um, stories about Jules Bernard Lewis, the neurologist who was allegedly Sadafi's teacher, right? So there's this kind of alternative line in which Islamic theologians are taking up spiritist ideas that both overlap and also are distinct from the line that leads to Sakafi and his, his um, society, the, the society that he found. Well, that's really interesting. So we're seeing in a way that the, this combination of European science and scientized religiosity is being a, a, adopted and, 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 and adapted and uh, used in different ways, really, by different actors in Iran, some of whom want to criticize Islam, some of whom want to promote Islam, but feel the need to defend it against the, the charges of the Iranian anti-clericalists, the anti-religious figures, who are saying that Iranian Islam, Shi'i Islam, is, is either irrational or it's superstition. So these key terms then that you've talked about in your book, that of, of, of khurafat, of, of superstition, that figures like Khomeini and many other senior uh, Shi scholars try to say, no, that there are khurafat, there are superstitions. That's what the common people do. But the real Islam isn't khurafati. It's not superstitious. On the contrary, it's akalani. It's, it's rational. And this wider notion of a, a rationalized or perhaps a scientized Islam then becomes a part of the form of religiosity that's uh, enshrined, established as the state religion with the founding of the Islamic Republic from 1979 by Ayatollah Khomeini and then promoted. So although the Islam of the Islamic Republic is usually thought of as a revolutionary Islam, and indeed it is, 
it also then has this lesser known aspect then of, of, of being rationalized and scientized. So could you tell us more about how the Islamic Republic embraced and promotes this rationalized, albeit revolutionary Islam? Yeah. Uh, something I'll, I'll say before um, answering this question is, um, I think it's important for the answer that um, I'm going to give, is that when we talk about rationalization, um, uh, I think it's important to, to, uh, to notice the different kinds of rationalization at work, right? So the, the sorts of rationalization that we're seeing from the 19th century onwards um, shouldn't blind us to the, the or, or make us ignore the kinds of rationalization that had already been in place before this, right? So when, when Khomeini was taking up spiritist ideas um, uh, in the 1940s, he was already drawing on a centuries-old theological tradition that is itself uh, drawing on um, a kind of rationalist, um, philosophy with a really long history, right, in the, in the Muslim lands, which is uh, which draws on Greek philosophy and then has elaborated it in all kinds of ways, right. So, really, with the with the revolution in 1979, what you see is a confluence of multiple uh, traditions, if you will, of rationality. On the one hand, you have this uh, centuries-old theological tradition. Um, on the other hand, you have a jurisprudence, which is also in conversation and entangled with the theology, um, which is also a rational jurisprudence. Um, and then you have the scientized um, religion, right? You have, you have modern empirical science as a support for uh, um, and that's suffusing religiosity. What happens after the revolution is that the, the idea that science and Islam are compatible, first of all, becomes part of state doctrine. Right, so this it was already something that was commonly um, understood and and accepted among uh, many um, uh, uh, Shi'i scholars, but it became a matter of basically state orthodoxy. What's complicated about that is that the parameters of what exactly this means, what is that, what exactly does it mean for science and Islam to be compatible? That was something that had to be worked out. Right, so. Um, on the one hand, you had this um, idea, for example, that still persists to a large extent, and not only in Iran, which um, says that the Quran itself, the holy book of Muslims, includes scientific miracles, right? So there are ways in which the Quran presages scientific discovery. And this is something that to this day is taught in Iranian school textbooks. On the other hand, there's only a certain extent to which this idea goes, right? So there, there are critics of the notion that the Quran has scientific miracles in it who say that we shouldn't be taking this idea too far. That is, we shouldn't be interpreting the Quran strictly speaking or, or primarily through scientific methods, right? Um, because what this is going to do is it's going to, it's going to undercut um, the, the rational coherence of the Qur'an, which has been established in other ways, through theology and philosophy. And these are fellow Muslim critics, aren't they? I mean, this is a sort of an, an, an inter-Shia Muslim debate, isn't it, about the, the, the Qur'an and science? Absolutely. And, and ironically, um, one of the, um, I, don't do, I don't really discuss this uh, at length in the book, but um, one of the chief proponents of the idea that you um, need to understand the Quran scientifically was uh, one of the groups that were really into this idea were um, Islamic Marxists. So you had reactions to this from some of the more classically trained Muslim jurists and theologians who said, yes, 
you know, the Quran is, there are certain scientific truths within the Quran, but we shouldn't take this too far. It should ultimately be the rational hand of theology that guides our approach to the Quran. And if we can draw on scientific understandings and in the meantime, that's fine, and it can support how we're, how we're proceeding. And there's, a, there's an interesting kind of sociological issue at work here, too, because the Islamic Marxists were after really democratizing access to the Quran, right? And, and their argument was anybody who has training in the sciences, which by this point in the 70s is a lot of people, right? And middle class um, edu- Iranians educated through the public school system, you know, anybody who has this access should be able to interpret the Quran. Whereas the, um, the scholars who are trained in the seminaries are saying, well, hold on a second. You need to really have the professional knowledge, the professional expertise with which to properly interpret the Quran. And what is that? It's scholastic theology. It's scholastic philosophy, which for the layperson is not very easy to grasp. Right? So the, 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 this kind of uh, working out of this idea that science and Islam is compatible, are compatible, therefore, became a really um, critical concern. One more thing I'll say is that in, in terms of thinking about how science and Islam come together in the Islamic Republic after the revolution, another dimension of this, not entirely new, but again, taking on new kinds of salience, is that the state takes on the both the Islamic duty and the rational duty of combating superstition, right? And and educating the public and, and, and so on. And the form that it takes is that there are both theological ways in which superstition can be combated. And again, this goes back many centuries, already from, I don't know, like the 10th century, you have Muslim theologians who are engaged in a combat against Khurafat, right? But it also takes scientific dimensions. So so when you you have a state-led attempt to um, reform superstitious ideas or to stop them in their tracks, you might get this from multiple directions, whether it's the clerical or it's the scientific. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, as you've been, the word you use, there's, there's a, a great confluence of different sources of knowledge, of, of intellectual authority, of ultimately political authority that come together with the Islamic revolution of 1979. On the one hand, the, there are the centuries-old traditions of, of Islamic jurisprudence, of Islamic theology, and indeed in the Iranian Shi'i context, particularly forms of Islamic philosophical thought that survived more in Iran than elsewhere. There's also these newer ideas, aren't there? As you've mentioned, there are, there are Marxists, often Iranians who've studied in Paris, like virtually every student in Paris in the 1960s, Iranians pick up Marxism, and some of them create this form of Islamic Marxism. And of course, there are the ideas that are coming from the Indo-Pakistani Islamist, Abu Allah Maududi, who dies in seven, 1979, just long enough to see the, the revolution he helped inspire taking place in Iran. And Maududi promoted an idea that, the, that, that Islam requires a state, and a state that, that follows and indeed promotes Islamic law sharia. And indeed, the idea of an inqalab, a, a Marxist idea in many ways, a revolution, as the means to make that happen. So in 1979 then, Ayatollah Khomeini then, the senior clerical figure, leads the... Uh, leads or at least transforms a popular revolution into an Islamic revolution. And from that point then, the, the state that's created, the Islamic Republic of Iran, takes it as its, uh, its moral duty and, it, and its uh, legal fiat, its legal ability, to police and to control what is 
respectable religiosity, what is legitimate religiosity? one of the most fascinating elements of your work is, is, has been to show how within the context of the Islamic Republic of Iran, where um, conversion and apostasy are, are illegal, effectively, they, they carry kind of strict sanctions. Within this context, when religious, when religious freedom is, 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 uh, is unavailable, various Iranians have used the category of, of the Farsi loanword metaphysique, borrowed from European or presumably the French metaphysique, metaphysics, to be able to continue these, this engagement with older European occultisms or in, indeed even newer forms of new age movements from America, while saying, well, we're still, it's okay, we're still Muslims, we're not breaking out of Islam, we're involved here with metaphysique. So there's an element of kind of, of wordplay of... Uh, of leisure de manner almost in a sense of kind of uh, of, uh, of of using words to be able to please to be able to escape as it was in a sense the policing religious activity in iran so so can you tell us then more about how iranian citizens since 1979 have, have used metaphysique to respond to state-sanctioned religiosity yeah that's a great question um uh, metaphysique is a fairly recent term um i i'm not aware that it was around right after the revolution but definitely from around 20 years ago or so, or maybe even a bit longer, it became a, a, a very common term, not in its philosophical sense of, you know, the study of being qua being, so the, the kind of um, inquiry that Aristotle was engaged in and that Muslim philosophers have been familiar with for a very long time, but instead as a kind of systematic and rational knowledge of the supernatural or, or even a scientific um, understanding of the supernatural. It seems to come out of the New Age milieu. You know, so th there's a wonderful book by Courtney Bender called uh, The New Metaphysicals about metaphysical religiosity in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right, in the, in the late 20th, early 21st century. And, um, you know, th this term has been around in, in American religion for quite some time. And that seems to be where this comes from. Perhaps there's also French uh, sources for this. Now, the term, as you put it it, it, it lends itself to uses that don't necessarily accord with state religiosity, right? So you have from um, the end of the war with Iraq, in, uh, which, end, which lasted from 1980 to 1988, once that war ends, you have, due to various factors, social and economic changes, you have the rise of many different um, spiritual groups that call themselves in one way or another metaphysical. And they are at varying levels of distance from official orthodoxy, right? And why do I say varying levels of difference? Because some of them um, don't articulate what they're doing as alternatives to Islam at all. Others very explicitly do so, and of course they need to be a bit more cautious about um, where they do so and how. So you have the, the way in which often the, the kind of distance with official orthodoxy is navigated by these groups is to describe metaphysics or metaphysique not as a question of religion, but instead as a question of science. Right. To say, look, we're not, what we're doing, I attended um, New Age type seminars where the teacher would say right off the bat, the very first session, look, this is not a religious seminar. What we're doing here is we're teaching science. These are sciences of the soul. These are sciences of the self. These are sciences of the universe. And, and that's what we're doing here. You know, so, so in a sense, the distinction between science and religion allowed practitioners of metaphysique to kind of carve out a space for themselves to practice without 
um, incurring kind of the suspicions of the state. On the flip side of this, precisely because of this possibility to think of metaphysics not as particularly religious per se, but as perhaps scientific, also lent itself to state religiosity. Right? So you have a lot of people who consider themselves orthodox and, and people who are promoting the project of orthodoxy who um, describe part of what they're doing as, in, as inspired by myth. An example of this, Channel 4 of state television had a, had a, uh, a show um, from the mid-2000s for about five or six years called Cinema and the Beyond. And the, the word Mavara there is basically a translation of metaphysique. And often on the show, the, the, the hosts and the guests who were invited to talk about various films, they, were, they would talk about what they were looking at as this, the metaphysical in cinema. And what would they do? They would talk about, very often, Hollywood horror films and the ways in which Hollywood horror and Hollywood sci-fi would allow a kind of metaphysical exploration of the soul that could be instructive to distinctively Islamic explorations of these same topics. So the metaphysical here became a kind of a science of the soul or a kind of a rational approach to the soul and to the supernatural. I can give you another example. There was a preacher in Shiraz in, in the mid 2000s who, who gave this one sermon that I found really interesting where he argued that practices of mourning in which Shia Muslims kind of beat their chests in, 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 in a harmonious manner, that this was not merely a religious duty. It actually had scientific benefit. And the scientific benefit for him was that it activated the chakras of the chest, which is an idea that comes out of um, you know, meditation and yoga and so on. And for him, this, this was a scientific idea, right? And, and, you know, here the metaphysical is a, science, is, is, is a scientific domain of knowledge. But this, was, this didn't remain precisely within the boundaries of the scientific, right? So precisely whether the metaphysical is scientific or whether it's, it's more a matter of a kind of religious heterodoxy, that determines whether or not these practices are allowed to continue or whether they become the objects of state suspicion, right? And, and it's precisely this fact, I think, that made it possible for someone like this preacher in Shiraz in 2006 or so to be saying this, but then later on, you know, this idea kind of dropped off the radar for him, precisely around the time in the, in the around 2007 or 8, when the state began to be suspicious of alternative forms of spirituality and said, hey, wait a minute, these things that we so far thought were actually, I don't know, therapeutic practices, medical practices, or scientific in some other way, in fact, are, are marketing alternative forms of religiosity. Right, that run counter to state orthodoxy. Because as you described it in your book, the while this was a largely a let's say a middle class and urban milieu of followers of these movements of metaphysique, whether more or less framed in terms of, of Shi Islam in the 1990s and 2000s. While they were largely urban, nonetheless, they were out in the open with many books published and, and increasingly large gatherings and seminars and so on. To the point that, as you've hinted, some of the, the leaders of these metaphysical movements or gatherings were, in fact, uh, imprisoned on, in some cases, charges of facade uh, fil adad, which is to effectively say perversion on the earth, blasphemy charges. So I think what your research lends itself to, I think, in many ways, is, is a larger question of what does the experience of the Islamic Republic of Iran tell us about the ability of states to control religion 
or indeed to satisfy the religious needs of their citizens? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, I think the place to begin answering this is to to really notice that states can do a lot. Um, just by using the massive resources that they have at their disposal. Um, on the one hand, this could be by promoting and supporting um, ideas, by promoting and supporting practices, whether that be through the media, through um, the establishment of institutions, um, by promoting texts uh, with financial support, and so on. And on the other hand, they also have massive resources in order to confront and control things. So you see both sides of this in the, the kind of the alternative spiritual realm in Iran. On the one hand, as you pointed out, uh, in the mid-1990s, um, well, really even earlier, but um, in the mid-90s, really it takes off, there is a lot of books being published um, that have some kind of alternative spiritual content, um, many of which are translations. Uh, you know, so you have, you have actual spiritist texts being translated, you have lots of texts in, uh, on, on yoga and meditation, you know, Deepak Chopra is a big uh, kind of um, personality at this point in Iran, uh, Rhonda Burns' The Secret, which was an Oprah favorite um, in the mid-2000s here, uh, and, and which still, by the way, is being published in Iran. So all of these are really being published in part because the state is allowing them to be published. So the, you know, the, the censorship uh, apparatus is uh, kind of adopting a more laissez-faire approach and uh, taking it a little bit easier. And this also means that they're giving publishers things like subsidies on paper and, and so on and so forth. And, and they're also promoting in other ways by with financial incentives, other kinds of texts, like something I described in the book, the hagiographies of, uh, of, of, of mystics, right? These holy figures of Shia Islam who are more contemporary than some of the people who... Um, were widely uh, venerated and, and, and known. Um, and, and these texts begin really to be published with, uh, often with state largesse um, from the late 90s, uh, sorry, or for, from the mid 90s onwards. So, so these are ways in which the state is promoting these things. And then there's also ways in which it begins to confront them, either through censorship or through um, a police action or legislative, or sorry, uh, judicial action, where, um, as you also um, mentioned, the leaders of some religious groups uh, being taken into custody, charged with very serious crimes, the withdrawal of licenses or withholding of licenses for public gatherings, which lead to many alternative spiritual groups actually going underground, um, more stringent kind of approaches to, um, uh, to, to licensing and, and to the, you know, permitting uh, these kinds of events. <laughs> So, you know, both of these are happening at the same time. I think one thing that we learn from really the, the, the experience of the Islamic Republic is that no matter how much the state, you know, invests itself and uses its resources to craft public religiosity according to the model that it prefers, there are consequences that are difficult to anticipate and, and costly to address, right? So, uh, you know, as examples, when I when the hagiographies that were promoted um, after the 1990s, these were a way for the state to promote new models of piety that were less political or less politically charged than 
the revolutionary models that were on offer um, in the early years of the revolution and during the war with Iraq. And they were massively popular. But at the same time, in doing so, the state also ended up promoting apolitical Islam, right? Uh, which, you know, can take directions that are not necessarily uh, in accord with the, the kinds of authority that it wants to promote of, say, the supreme jurist and the particular modes of authority that he wields. On the flip side, you have, you know, the promotion of scientific religion, right? Which is something that through the education system, through media and so on, the state has largely supported. That's not to say that these things have not advanced in ways that the state has not supported, right? So there's, there's you know, the state is not a kind of an, an, an omnipotent actor, but they have put money and resources into the promotion of scientific Islam. But then on the other hand, the, the and unintended consequences of this, an un, uh, unintended uh, consequence of this is that you end up enabling a, a sort of scientific mentality in approaching religion where the conclusion is not necessarily Islamic. Right. So you're training people through the education system to think scientifically and to think rationally about religion with the hope that the people will end up with the conclusion that, you know, the particular mode of Islam that you're promoting is the true one. But then the same mentality ends up supporting alternative conclusions. You have people who are approaching alternative modes of spirituality. Right. So I think this is something really to think about, not so much in terms of success or failure, but a challenge, right? A challenge that the Islamic State has had in Iran has had to deal with from the beginning, and I think we'll continue to do so. That's really an extraordinary set of insights you've given us from working as, a, as an anthropologist with your fieldwork on the ground in Iran, in Iranian society, but also looking very closely at the book market and what people are reading in Iran. And I think that's given us a really rare insight of actually what religion looks like on the ground in an Islamic state. Alireza Dustad, thank you for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thank you so much, Niall. It's been a pleasure. Da 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 da